Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with your charismatic host and prominent safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Be entertained and informed as the Safety Doc discusses both best and bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. The truth will keep you safe. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. Hi, this is David from the Safety Doc Podcast. And today we are going to do something pretty incredible. You know, we haven't done this on the Safety Doc before. We are doing a collaborative podcast with Elijah from Nerdy by Nature. So, Hi. Uh, hey, Elijah. Welcome. Thanks, David. Uh, Appreciate so it. So this is, this is also the bridging of Canada, where Elijah's at right now. And yes. the United States. So we're, we're powering North America together to do this yes. podcast. The North American uh, podcast. Yes. Safety doc. Nerdy by nature. It's a good time. Who would have thought this would have happened like a year ago? Like nobody. And all of a sudden it's happening. And, and I know it's, awesome. it's it's trending on Twitter right now. Oh, yeah. There's at least seven, eight twi- uh, you know, hashtags deep right now. People are like, I can't believe this is happening. When will this be live? So, um, win it, win it to win it <laughs> podcast forever, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. So history in the making. So, uh, Good. so just a, a little bit about my, uh, about my podcast and then, um, sure. I'll have Elijah talk about, um, nerdy by nature. Now I'm a sure. fan of nerdy by nature. Thank you. Uh, I, I love the exploration of the lesser known, but very relevant points in history in science. Um, and, and we had talked um, just beforehand of like, I believe it was the Qin dynasty right. um, in, in China and, you know, the, um, you know, acres and acres buried of, of um, you know, clay soldiers and, and just, mm-hmm. um, but with the safety doc podcast, uh, I, I focus largely on physical safety, agency and purpose, um, situational awareness and have presented on a number of, of topics in that realm and have also interviewed people, including a blind man for 65 years who talked about safety and had some very entertaining uh, stories, um, in addition to heart-touching stories to share with that. Um, a lady who is in her mid-20s and has traveled already 12 or 14 times to Haiti and has done humanitarian wow. work and, and gave a lot of behind-the-scenes things like the time she broke up a bar fight when she was like 17 years old and somebody had a knife and, and wow. all of these things. So I'm like, whoa. Um, it's a lot and, of life experience for 20. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. And I'm like, it was this, it was right after I got back from Disney Orlando. I drove my family down. So I'm like, I just went to five new states and she's been to, you know, like almost every country in the world. <laughs> and I'm like, it you know, look bad, so, eh? <laughs> You know, uh, it, it was funny. She was a terrific, a terrific guest and talked a lot about the Travel Safe program, which is free, available to all um, citizens of the United of the United States. So, yeah, that's what we do on the, on the Safety Doc. And awesome. um, I've been a fan of Nerdy by Nature and Elijah, your work. And it just happened to, to come about where we could do this to do this show. So um, t- uh, tell us about, you know, Nerdy by Nature. Sure. Thanks, David. Uh been about a year going on now and you're right kind of dive into things and the whole premise and plan words is to kind of get nerdy about topics and dive in a little bit without um putting into sleep i guess you could say <laughs> to get hit those points and kind of 
a high level, I guess, for half an hour and kind of hit some points and get you enough interested. And then if you want more, you can always research Google or hit the blog right. or what, what you like. Uh, different topics we do is mostly science, as you said, and we'll take care of uh, old ancient histories and uh, explore the Bermuda, Bermuda Triangle or uh, discover Atlantis, try and figure that out. And then there's other topics we'll kind of jump into a bit of tech or Skynet or even um, Space Odyssey 2001. That was a good one. It was. Sure. It was, yeah. I, uh, even, I remember. For sure, yes. And, and even things like Legion and uh, the one coming up, The Stranger Things, is a, a great show we love too. So I awesome. don't know if you've seen it, but it's a bunch of kids playing D&D in the 80s and kind of just talking about the, the whole Dungeon Dragons premise and kind of make it into, um, I guess... Uh, for yourself, talking about safety, um, definitely have to watch out what dimension you're in before you get too carried away. Yeah, I played Dungeons and Dragons uh, back on my in television, you know, years really? ago. So yes, and I, I remember you could hear the little hissing of the dragon as you go around the corner. I'd be like, "Okay, get my arrows ready." That's right. This is it. Roll some dice. Hope for the best. Yeah. That's good. yeah. <laughs> Not afraid of being who you are. I guess that's kind of how it is for both of us. You call out different things psychology-wise. I, I call it different things and, you know, maybe some anxiety, depression. So it kind of crosses over. So it works out. Yeah. It, and, and you know, we've worked together on putting together talking points for today. But this show is going to probably go in a lot of different directions. And, right. and I think for uh, people listening in, they're going to appreciate um, once we, we kind of merge uh, our, our two knowledge base is what's going to come out of this. So, um, so, so uh, Elijah, if, if you can maybe get us rolling with, um, a discussion on, you know, ancient civilization. So maybe building from the, at the ground up this discussion. Absolutely. I know we were talking about different things, uh, before to prep and we were kind of getting into society in general and to kind of come to the idea that ancient civilizations aren't really that far off from today, which is interesting. Uh, getting back into that uh, Chinese, first Chinese emperor, Qin, or Q-U-Q-I-N, pardon me. He um, was big into slavery, he was big into high standards, and he was big into making his people do things that uh, they, they didn't necessarily want to do, but they wanted to live. So that was their purpose and right. their drive. Interestingly enough, it wasn't, say, uh, gold pieces or silver pieces. It was just um, if you don't have this perfect standard, you'll actually get tortured or hanged. So, uh, and the whole, uh, he couldn't watch everybody. So what he did was he went uh, to people and they had little blocks of uh, neighborhoods, let's call them. Okay. And within these neighborhoods, there was one person kind of like um, a neighborhood watch person. And th the whole neighborhood was responsible for ratting each other out if somebody was bad. So the whole mentality was kind of just, Big brothers there, but you're watching everybody else to make sure that um, your neighbor is doing good things and to to maintain this high standard. Um, if you didn't and you're caught, um, say, friending or or hiding something or um, playing this game, then you would be tortured and the whole neighborhood would be penalized. So the the interesting thing is that not just one person was penalized, but if you don't play nice together or you try to be cohorts and some sort of, I don't know, criminal activity or just not being perfect, then the whole neighborhood goes. Um, it, you kind of see a lot of that today where you, everybody's kind of careful and watching a neighborhood watch, which yes. is interesting. 
Um, and then you kind of come back to where everybody was really proud. Um, everybody's into religion and looking for a higher power, a higher purpose, which was kind of neat too. Um, it, also with the old Chinese cultures, they would uh, big, be big in the ha- afterlife. So there's a lot of value in human life into purpose and what would happen after, which is interesting. Uh, kind of like religion and Christianity and Catholicism, Muslims now. Uh, a lot of people did different things to decorate their bodies and, and, and make those tombs that we were talking about with 300-pound statues of chariot fighters or warriors or just people that were, um, I guess, protecting the emperor from the afterlife. He was so worried about the negative stuff that he did that he had this 10,000 football field um, of of this underground statues. And it, it was just incredible. It was all this because he was worried about getting stung in the afterlife. Some ghost or other creature would come and get him. And that's right. the only purpose for that. So uh, leaders then were completely selfish and, and didn't care. There was no heartfelt appreciation for human life. But on the other hand, there was when you were talking about the afterlife. So it was kind of just really interesting mix, I guess you could say. Yeah. As you speak about that, it reminds me of um, reading the book uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl um, was a um, neuroscientist who was a prisoner at Auschwitz um, during World War II. Oh, okay. And he talked about, um, you know, you talked about the neighborhood watch. And mm-hmm. basically, um, the the concept for the the prisoners was that certain prisoners would be picked and identified as capos, C-A-P-O-S. Mm-hmm. And then your responsibility as a capos would be to look after the other prisoners, like in your barrack, for example. Um, And as long as everything was fine and everything, meaning if there was a piece of straw from the, the, you know, wooden bunks that was on the floor, you could be beaten and lose your rank as capos for that. So really the, the, yeah, it's amazing. Um, So, so Victor talks about how somebody that you knew, you know, for several weeks or whatever, um, if they got promoted into this capo's role, quote unquote, promoted, um, they turned nasty because it was a it was a way out for them. I mean, it was a likelihood that they would survive. They'd get a little better food, you know, a little better ration, not much, but then they had to be nasty toward um, toward their own and absolutely rat out. And and so, in in some aspects, you know, he wrote and, I, and I've read this. Um, in, in other works pertaining to the um, Nazi prison camps, it was actually the prisoners who were promoted into quote unquote pseudo guard roles who were the, the nastiest, who were more nasty than the SS. Um, and, and I think that's a real um, interesting part of psychology to, to look at, you know, how, you can you can identify your need for survival and this path to survival and instantly turn on on your own quote unquote your own I mean people um, that that you had befriended people of it might have been from your neighborhood and so forth so um, yeah yeah that's I, I kind of that parallel jumped out right away interesting because it almost seems like there's a class structure being developed in in that story where there'd be the guard that maybe 
um, a little more well off or more important, or maybe his ego was just inflated to make it seem like he was somebody more important. And then there'd be this peasant or this um, a criminal that's kind of looked upon as, I don't know, at the scum of the earth, so to speak. So it's yeah. kind of interesting how that works out. And yeah, that whether you talk about uh, Chinese or Greek or Egyptians, or even if you go way back to Incas um, in South America, it's always been a class system where somebody's always been more important. Um, you go jump into Cleopatra's day where there was inventors and the Greeks and they were more important uh, doctors and so on. Or you go back to um, in East Indian uh, culture where there was physicists in um, I think 900 say BC but that was a while back. Um, and so jumping around a bit, and, and I know I'm going back and forth and kind of time shifting here on you, but there's no matter what culture you go to, there's always a class system. And then we take it to now, talking about World War II and 1800, 1900s, 20th century, 21st century, there's still a class system. And it's even worse now, I would say, that people are uh, more well-off or, or more more poor. There's, there's this big variance in it's kind of scary, but uh, it's taken a couple thousand years to develop this wide gap in the human race. Yeah, yeah, I I, I completely agree with that. This 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 um, extreme, um, you know, either either you're very wealthy and you have access to resources, and and then also not only that, um, the um, producer of the comic uh, strip Dilbert. And, oh, yeah. and I can't think of his name right now, and I, I, I regret that. But um, he, I, I listened to uh, a few presentations that he had he had given, and and basically he said, you know, I'm I'm well off. I could easily just create my own bubble and and remove myself from society. Hmm. And he said, um, you know, I'll never do that. I still do my own laundry. He's like, I don't want to lose touch with with what it is to be. Um, you know, be a part of society, but yet like right. so many people have, um, and, and the, um, it, it's, it's, you're right. These, these, uh, polar Scott Adams, Scott <laughs> Adams, that just came to me somehow, Elijah. I don't know how, but Wikipedia it got a million hits. I'm sure of it. So <laughs> good. But yeah, Scott, and Scott Adams is, is phenomenal to listen to. I mean, he's, he's extremely um, introspect, introspective and talks about um, the art of persuasion. He's also trained as a hypnotist. Really? Um, but, but yeah, so, um, but it, it was amazing. You know, he talked and, and the one thing it just stuck out with me, he said, I, I always do my laundry. Like I, I feel that that is my connection back into reality. But, and, and I think we'll get into this a little bit further Um into our discussion, you know, later on of like, what is AI, artificial intelligence? And, and I watched the movie just a few days ago, um, uh, I, that, you know, had to do, um, what was it? Hal, you know, Hal 3000 and then, um, I robot with Will Smith, hmm. you know, of, of what it really would be like, you know, if it's 75 years from now and we walk around and, and there are, you know, either, Human, um, you know, cyborgs, and cyborgs like or, 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 you know, completely robotic entities who, who are around us. And what does that mean for a class, you know, system? And, and I think, 
you know, just to forecast, you know, we're going to get into things like uh, universal, you know, basic income and, and, and what that might mean and how people derive sense of, of agency and purpose. Um, and, and I think it, I, I, I'm actually pretty scared about, <laughs> about that. So, um, when you talk about, uh, purpose, David, it kind of reminds me of, I believe it's Greek culture where they had, uh, coliseums and, and horses and jousting and things like that. And, not necessarily just clowns or entertainment, but people are forced as uh, sometimes slaves to go out into the Colosseum to be able to perform for the rich. And you were forced to go into uh, the battle of the death. Yes. Where people uh, that you're talking about purpose, this is, you don't have purpose. Your sole purpose in life is to entertain the rich. Almost like you're, almost like in modern days where you go on the internet and you bet on somebody or something like that, or horse races where back then it was, you know, a big glass of ale and, and having a good time in these big coliseums. But interestingly enough, these people that were jousting or battling to the death, they didn't have a choice. They just kind of chain link and off you go. Yeah. You know, it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, for example, in Milwaukee, not too far from here, they, they voted to build a new arena for the Milwaukee Bucks basketball f- franchise. And, and uh, 50% of it is publicly funded. Um, yeah. You know, so it's it's people paying uh, a tax to build a, a an arena, you know, which is a palace, um, you know, be completely, you know, state of the art with the biggest uh, scoreboard for an arena in the world when it's when it's done next year. But but it's one of those things, too, where a lot of the people who are taxed to pay for this will never have any type of um, direct or ancillary benefit from that. Um, but yet. um it's it it is this um it, i guess imposing of of the building of the coliseum and and kind of more indirectly you know the the funding of the performers in the coliseum um wow wow um so i guess um if you're talking about different things that people are doing in the coliseum and you, you really have I don't know, it, back to that force mentality where people don't have a say in what governments are doing, right? So you're basically the government saying in this case that you pay taxes and this is how much the taxes are allocated to. But if you have AI or something to that effect, perhaps the intelligent beings, if you will, are going to be able to predict uh, what taxes will be like, what uh, people will pay for, or even they'll be able to figure out a more of a, a detailed system. Say it's Instead of 1% goes to here, maybe it's decimal 7,000 or something to that effect, where just a little bit needs to go here and here, and perhaps they can make the most of our, our money more efficiently. As you know, today, governments aren't that great at being efficient and kind of wasteful. So right. you never know if that would kind of uh, bode better, or maybe there's a better purpose than the Coliseum and, uh, or what have you. you know, maybe it's roads or technology, or maybe it's just getting out of coal and going to more efficient uh, electricity. Who knows? The prioritization matrix um, in government of, of figuring out what is the, um, you know, I, I guess the appropriate priority set to allocate funding to. Um, when I, when I did my presentation um, on public television following the 2012 Sandy Hook uh, massacre, you know, which was mm. a, a massive, um, shooting um, with fatalities at an elementary school, you know, in Eastern coast United States. Uh, But 
An interesting aspect of that from a policy standpoint is within six months following that, there were 450 bills that came out across the United States on ways to improve school safety. And with those came some pretty substantial price tags. Uh, But Elijah, of those bills, almost all of them were for fortifying the school environment. Mm. And while those address some of the direct causes, like having entryways where you have to be buzzed in and there's a secondary um, area where you have to be buzzed in from and show some security and stuff. And I I, I talk about this and I write about this. If those things are very marginally effective, I mean, there are things such as you know, you, you can harden one target, but you soften another target. So the playground then becomes a soft target. The bus pickup becomes a soft target because you don't have those types of security at those locations. Right. But as I analyze these bills, the the root causes of of issues um, that that lead to, for example, school shootings, one is uh, you know mental health, and and a second root cause is that you're not. Um, you're not developing uh, effective threat input systems. They're complex. Kids don't understand them. Kids aren't trained on them. So those are research proven. And the NFL, for example, National Football League, I did a presentation with their security branch. They've gone to an app-based instant management system. And the NFL is, you know, in charge of every every stadium of maybe 70 80,000 people keeping that that stadium safe during the, this this game and and they wow. do um but i looked at these bills and some of them were absolutely ridiculous and it's rhetoric it's public forums where people come in and say we want to see schools without windows because oh, then no you know and and you know i'm like well there was a study the um you know uh, the hashong uh, Mahone study that was done on the West Coast of the United States over a number of years, correlating the benefits of sunlight to academic performance and actually overall social performance and attendance and things like that. People don't want to hear about it. It's like, nope. So what you're talking about, and I'd like to to hear, um, I'd like to hear hear you take this apart. So sure. artificial intelligence. It, Okay, right right now, after, for example, that school shooting, um, you get 450 bills. Most of them are completely ridiculous, and, and most of them just faded away. It's it's people coming out, and they're and they're they're frightened. They don't know what to do, but they can see a security guard. They can see a steel door. They can do things like that. It's visible. It's tangible to them, and they think this is the answer. And they don't want to listen to research. You can put the research out there, and it's like they they don't even want to hear it. And actually. Um, it's not that they'll say cordially they don't want to hear the research. It's like, be quiet. We, we don't care. This is what we want. And I'm like, and I did a num- I, I did school consulting with safety for a while and I kind of evolved out of that, just working with some companies and, and, um, you know, looking at more interface systems and things like that because the schools, um, it, it was just so overpowering, you know, the, the communities and the school boards of whatever they wanted. If you came in with research, if the research supported what they wanted, that was great. If it didn't, then it was completely, you know, tossed to the side. So, so how do you see that this, this, what happened after Sandy Hook, what ha- with these 450 bills, and these knee jerk reactions and, and all of these bills, you know, millions of dollars in time and, and people just, how does AI come in and help to make that a better process? 
good question. Uh, I, I think that government officials just have to react uh, to the situation and react the best they can to make sure that they feel uh, that the public has uh, trust in them. And if they don't react appropriately, like you said, then out come the pitchforks and the, I don't know, the uh, flames and shotguns or whatever, and people running around throwing chairs around. They're upset and they want action. Like you said, I demand this, but people don't always know what's right for them. And that's why there's those people in place to take care of the safety. But uh, there's a whole lot of emotion that goes into this. And I really think that AI could take out the emotion. If we don't program AI to have the emotional set or to to target a certain, say, a race, if you will, then we should be okay to have impartial view of what happens and that to be able to take the the mathematical formulas that AI can do and to just squish apart the 450 bills and make them efficient without the rhetoric or the feeling or the emotion, then on one side, it could be really great. But on the other side, it could be too efficient in operational sense. So you won't have that feeling. And then perhaps the people won't um, trust in their political advisors. So catch 22, you know, the, the emotional piece is helpful, but if you're having these knee jerk reactions, then those 450 bills, like you said, could be half of them a waste of time. Uh, right. Not, not really a concrete uh, answer. I can't predict the future, but it, I think it would be more useful um, and impartial and to take away that um, we want this kind of demand. We know what's best for us to have someone or something that doesn't know how to think like a human that just thinks about the facts and then worries about nothing else. So, so also what, what is, what is AI? Um, and I've struggled with this because I think people look for a leader and right. I, you know, I watched the Lego movie, um, mm-hmm. you know, and Emmett is the chosen and right. Emmett, of course, you know, it, it, in this movie, um, is just a, a typical construction worker. And, and, you know, it, it's, it's, the, it's the movie line of, of just the ordinary person that gets, that gets, uh, put into the hero role. And then they, they emerge to fulfill that role, you know, with some tacit knowledge or abilities that they didn't, they didn't know were there. And sure. part of it is, you know, I think when people believe in you, they will follow you, even if it's um, even if what you're saying isn't rational. I mean, we've seen this with cults and things like that, where people have have you know followed. Um, but uh, well, well, Hitler's a perfect example. I don't want to bring up uh, terrible history, but yeah, that's, that's case in point where all the all the nonsense that came out of his mouth about racism and uh, say halfway to slavery, you have a great punchline and a salute and a terrific mustache. And then people are yours forever. It's wild. And that's case in point to what you're saying. It is. It is. I, I, I remember um, reading about when Hitler would give speeches and afterwards and, and the front rows would be it was like a, a justin bieber concert it would be all of the 15 16 year old german girls and and they would uh they adored him and they would write him um you know letters saying you know please marry me and and these marriage proposals he had from 15 and wow. 16 year old girls who were, who were just enamored by his charisma mm. and i i think you know this this vesting in a charismatic leader 
Um, I, I interviewed somebody who responded and actually it's two people who, who've, who've done this, um, over time, but who respond were first on the scene to a car crash. And then, um, during this car crash had gone into action to try to, to, to save somebody from a burning vehicle or something. And then bystanders would come by and what they would do. So the, you know, the person who was initially trying to, to respond to this, he said the bystanders would kind of stand there and, and not know how to interface into the situation. And the, the one person, um, Kevin, you know, um, uh, just said, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And, and the people did it. And um, it, it, it was amazing. And the other person I had spoken with, it was kind of the same thing. He's like, you need to get on the road and, and make sure that you're steering traffic here. I mean, and it, was, it wasn't previous training that they had. It was just as soon as somebody gave directives, people followed and people looked to that. And my, my question as I watch like, um, you know, like I robot with Will Smith and, and, and there are others and, and, you know, we've talked about those and I'd like you to talk about some of the movies, um, you know, that, that we had mentioned that were very significant with artificial intelligence, but, um, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I can see both ways. I can see, I can see a society willing to hand over, um, some, you know, I'm willing to follow this AI, I don't know if you call it entity or being or algorithm or whatever sure. it would be. On the other hand, it's like there's absolutely no way I'm going to do that. And then what happens if AI makes a mistake? Because oh, yeah. um, I don't think it would be very – society would be very forgiving um, if there was some AI mistake that happened. Um, and, and then there were other, I mean, there's so much in context and situation. Let's say like there's a, there's a massive, um, there's a, a dam that's fragile and the, the AI, you know, interface down the road is looking at calculations and so forth and, and all of taking in data and, and saying, you know, the situation doesn't require an evacuation. And then all of a sudden there's an earthquake and the dam collapses. Well, mm-hmm. The AI model could not have predicted this unforeseen variable. I mean, it wasn't right. a data set that was available. or So then people are like, it was the AI model that killed 2,000 people. And, you know, it's the same thing of Pitchfork, the computer, you know, until it, the last, you know, remnants of the solid state drive are shattered. So how, sure. how do you see that? Because I, I struggle with with trying to understand it's almost like religion to some extent, because you have to have this faith and this, this belief in either uh, an entity, or if it even is this, this hierarchy of some type of management system within the universe. So maybe it it parallels there. I don't know. It's a, it's kind of interesting because people don't understand the technology. So they assume it's perfect. Um, It's a computer. It's a, it's a marvel. It's amazing. This is great. Um, like the television or the radio or uh, the vehicle, whatever um, industrial revolution that we've had, people always assume it's this great magic wonder. But uh, the truth is that AI is only as good as you make it to be. So if you program something um, into context, let's say there is, um, let's say we're in Western world and um, there's a lot of middle-class white folks or Caucasian folks, and you program the, AI to learn about the people around it, then it's going to only understand, you know, what uh, identifies somebody that's Caucasian. 
Um, it's not being racist. It's just it doesn't have any other data to be able to input, say, if it was African-American or what have you, then that's that's a limitation. Or if you only put in the calculations that it knows, say, if you have somebody that's not good at math and, and great algebraic make, uh, calculations, then it's only going to go so far to your point where the, the earthquake is is an issue, but it, it can't predict that because it wasn't programmed to learn. Or if it is programmed and it has machine learning capability, it learns from other people around it. So if you put Trump in its corner, for example, whether you like him or not, he's not perfect. And he always looked to people like Trump who um, he wants to be like and emulate, not on purpose, but it's almost like a child who's four or five years old. That child is almost going to emulate the parent mentality and look to them for resources and understanding. Even if you program them, it still needs to learn from somebody else. So the scary part is if you put it with the wrong people, then those mistakes will happen unintentionally or not. That's a little deep, but that'll give you some food for thought. Yeah, yeah. I was, um, I watched the, so there was a Twilight Show marathon mm -hmm. over the weekend, and the Twilight Show was from the, the 1960s, and, and nice. you know, really that, that first um, kind of analysis of, of the unspoken questions of, of life and existence, the dimensions, but there, there was an episode and the title is to serve man. One of the most popular episodes of the twilight series. Um, and in a summary, uh, aliens had, had come to earth and made contact and the aliens looked, you know, somewhat like humans. I mean, mm. so you could, you could, and they communicate through some, some, telepathic means but um but basically they had established this this program where they were going to have an exchange of of so many from their um i guess you know race or species with ours and they left a book um and and anyway they were the the government was trying to decipher what this book meant and they got the the title which was to serve man and it wasn't until the end of the episode that they realized it was a cookbook so really what was just happening was you know this harvesting of, of people um to be consumed um so but but the part of this i i i think that was so alarming was initially when the first spacecraft comes in people are all nervous and and terrified uh, sure. You know, what is this? And this is the most significant moment in mankind. And then, you know, the, the aliens come in and befriend the the humans and say, mm -hmm. you know, you, they, they do some demonstrations of here's how we're going to fortify your soil and just, you know, life is going to be so much better. And soon that that trust is completely given into the aliens and people are just they can't wait to get on these mm -hmm. ships and, and visit this other planet where they have all of these wonderful things available to them basically eden and once you achieve that too that's the other part um once you achieve eden you don't question anymore because it's like well this is this is how can it get better than this um and i i think to me that was really an alarming part of that uh you know there were always messages within the twilight zone videos i think to get people to be introspective and and um but it's like, you know, if you think things are really good and you're really well taken care of it, and maybe the analysis comes in when um, Edward Snowden talked about the NSA and saying, you know, we have this blind faith in the NF NSA that they are protecting um, 
America from future 9-11 attacks and, and so many different fronts. And because we have that, we largely just accept it and just say it's out there and it's doing what it needs to do, and that's fine, um, yeah. without really digging any deeper into that. So, I mean, what what are your thoughts there? Well, you get the conspiracy theorists, uh, say, like uh, Snowden, or you get WikiLeaks coming through, and, and or you get, um, I, I guess it's the... Um, I guess there's a YouTube channel called the Turks, the Young Turks. I don't know if you okay. know them. They're always kind of, um, kind of advocating advocating for the truth, so to speak. Um, and everybody has their own sets of truths. So that that to me is kind of interesting because there's the people that kind of just sheepishly follow uh, whatever the status quo is or whatever they're told. Like you say, they just kind of go along and do their business, almost like. Um, was it uh, J- Jim Carrey in the movie? Um, he, he went through, um, he said, good morning, good evening, good night. Uh, yes. The movie. He, uh, he went around and that, I guess that's kind of the perfect example that he was in this movie. Um, he was a real person. He was in a real state, but it was actually the director that gave birth to him uh, or t- adopted him. And the people around him were all fake uh, actors. They're real people, but they're actors. So they, they didn't have this emotional connection like he thought, almost absent. So whether or not you want to talk about that as the government, I guess you could say, kind of being fake and untrusting, um, they'll say what you want to hear, and that's good for most people. But then there's conspiracy theorists uh, and there's folks against the grain, like the um, like the people who up up with picket signs and what have you. They're the ones who are trying to change and and make things better, but yet they're always kind of outcasted as the people who are like the, the black sheep, for lack of a better expression. So people are always willing to trust uh, corporations, banks, uh, government agencies, without question, because they've learned in history uh, that this is the status quo. This is the norm, and their parents have always said, well, you just kind of live with it. You don't challenge it. You just do what you're told and go yes. from there. Um, so people that challenge things in the status quo, they end up going to jail or be tortured or hanged, depending on what culture. And, and they're just trying to fight for what's right when everybody else is leading down this path. And who knows where it'll take us? Um, it, it could be great or it might not be. And a lot of times we'll go through like 2008, the crash and the housing crash. That was at least in the States and Canada, I think, is coming close. And that was for people and, and whether it be Wall Street or it be government agencies, we trusted these people to lead us to the path of success. But yet everything kind of turned around us. We didn't do anything about it. We just, we don't know enough about it and it's too difficult to change. So we'll just keep going. And the cycle keeps continuing every 10, 20, 30 years. In the seventies, the oil crash and the economy kind of dips and the eighties, everything kind of spiked because nobody knew what they were doing. And the 1929, the the stock market crashed. So you kind of go back in history as I'm doing and, and, (laughs) and we're not doing anything different than we were hundreds of years ago. We're just still accepting failure and keep moving on. So the you talked about the Jim Carrey movie. That was the Truman Show. Oh, thank you. Um, and, and yeah, where his, his entire life was was being uh, videotaped and broadcast, and he, he had no idea um, that, was that was happening. Yeah. So, um, you know, what, what you talk about is the the scientific term I'm going to apply to it, and I'm just using this term because this is a term I'm incorporating into my book, Lessons of Lore Manhattan, the 
rescue of 500,000 people in nine hours from lower Manhattan on September 11, 2001. But I talk a lot about the concept, the Taurus, which which is a mathematical term, but the Taurus for simplicity, if you just think of a donut or an inner tube. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, circular and there's room with it within the Taurus to, to move. So the Taurus represents similarity. And we hear people, you know, Elijah, you hear it. People say, well, it's the same day. It's, this is the same thing. This is the same, whatever. It's like, well, no, first of all, nothing can ever be the same. Nothing is the same by definition. Things consist of different molecules and different arrangements. And right after this show, if we did another show, we could never do the same show because right. we've been informed differently from what we've talked about now and, and, you know, so forth. But, um, but we talk about this Taurus, people get, get very used to their, their Taurus of, you know, you get up in the morning if you're commuting and, and you, you drive to work and you might ask somebody, you know, the entire week, you know, how was your drive? What was the same every day? Well, the fact uh-huh. is it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the same. You had, you had different people around you that you interacted with. The weather was a little bit different. There might have been some delays. You got to work at different times, you know. So, I mean, you, you, all these little things, you know, what you listen to and read, you could actually, you know, we could say there's a million things if we if we wanted to. Sure. Um, and But people are so conditioned to just say, I want to be within my Taurus and I'm fine. And on, you know, the on September 11th, 2001, when the Twin Towers were hit, uh, the initial reaction was not, you know, running into stairwells and, and leaving the building. The initial reaction for about four minutes was people thinking, well, you know, th- there's something definitely abnormal going on. I can see flaming debris out my, my window, which I've read accounts, you know, of, of people saying this. But the other part was, well, when we do have safety evacuation drills, typically, you know, we're alerted to them. We gather near this, the stairwells and, you know, and some floors didn't even do that anymore. They just kind of stayed at their desk and four minutes later they'd buzz and they'd say, okay, all clear. And people were just waiting for the all clear. Although the building shook, they could see debris in their mind. They would force that back within that toroidal zone of just saying, this is still within normal. This is still, and, and not everybody did that, but hundreds of people did. Um, and I think that's really a frightening thing, too, of situational awareness and throughout history and people losing the ability to, I don't know if it's identify when they're moving out of the, their toroidal zone. You, you gave great examples like 1929 in the stock market and in 2008 um, and and things where there were obvious warning symptom, you know, signs leading up to that, especially 2008 and and. Um, you know, we, we, we started to see some, some very bizarre things happening with lending and with home ownership and stuff like that. Um, and student debt, you know, numbers starting to, to get absurd. And that's another part, I guess I, I'd like, you know, your thoughts on, you know, with your expertise in banking. Um, personally, Elijah, I have friends who are so much in debt. You know, between student loans, mortgage, home loans, and, and credit card debt, we're talking $150,000, $250,000 in debt. And the thing is, um, and they'll say to me, well, I'm going to take this trip down to the Bahamas or whatever, and it's $4,000. It doesn't matter because I'll put it on this card or spread it across 13 credit cards or however that magic happens. Mm-hmm. And 
what's the difference between 250000 and 260000 in debt? And I'm not sure, you know, my grandparents, um, you know, they only bought things when they could afford it. You know, they would save up and, and, and they knew the, the sting of the Great Depression. And actually, I think millennials, um, from what, what I've been obtaining, you know, understand 2008 and are very hesitant to make purchases such as, you know, vehicles and, and, and cars and things like that for, for not sure. wanting to be in a situation of financial vulnerability because they, they've saw it, they lived it. Um, but which is very interesting in a consumer based society. And, and when all of a sudden you, you start to have consumers who aren't purchasing and, 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 but, um, but yeah, I mean, what, what are your, you know, what are your thoughts on, on that? Because, Sure. I see people just becoming very, and, and not only people, but governments. I mean, you look at what seventeen trillion in deficits and, and stuff like this. It's like, well, what's the difference between seventeen and thirty-five at this point? Mm-hmm. And it's easy to me then to just totally, um, totally kind of go on this this frenzy, lose responsibility. The other part, it's like you know, my some of my friends, you know. I was, I would worry at night. I'd stay up and be like, Oh my goodness, how am I going to make this work? Or, you know, my daughter's going to college and they, they don't, it, it, it's not there, but it's not just, I'm not singling them out. I think it's a societal thing. I think as, you know, debt in societies all over, what, what what's your take on that? It's, it's funny you mentioned the millennials because I, I see depression era coming from the 1920s, um, coming in that Taurus, um, that you described all the way back to millennials. There was penny pinchers in the 20s because they didn't have anything. Was it uh, the fair costs a nickel or something like that? And you make a dollar a day. My grandfather always told me about that stuff, how you had to work hard and pound the pavement. There was no such thing as credit. And he built, he paid for his house in cash when he was retired at 65. You know, that, that was success for him. And then you take uh, that generation who worked so hard for everything and then kind of spoiled the baby boomers because, you know, the war was done and everybody was just being rabbits, if you will, for lack of better expression and making money and, and having a good time. And then the baby boomers took advantage of that and their kids kind of get a little spoiled. And then it kind of just happened again where um, the baby boomers are doing well and then that snowball effect happens. And then in the 70s, people kind of had that oil crisis and they go, oh, hold on. Um, maybe I don't have as much money as I did. Um, and then people, again, came to the 80s. At least in Canada, we had 19% mortgages, probably similar effect in in the States where everything was just astronomical. Yes. Because um, nobody could afford to live um, or else the, uh, I guess the spouses came into effect and they started working because they wanted independence and they didn't want to be this 50-style housewife anymore you wanted independence and women are progressing and that's a good thing but then there's now two incomes um and then the economy dropped and nobody makes 37 40 an hour everybody makes minimum wage because the jobs are split and the competition is more fierce men and women went wow men and women are now competing for jobs come into 90s and 2000 and and now there's just this crazy amount of spending uh, because credit cards stimulate the economy to get back into going. And now society is saying, oh, yeah, spend more, spend more, spend more. Let's get the economy going. And then it's just become a norm that we use credit cards and we're in debt. We use overdraft and we have loans out to our eyeballs. And up up north in Canada, 
Uh, middle class is about 160% debt to income on average, which is nuts. So you have 160% of your income is going to debt. And eventually that debt is just going to run out, right? And and then you get um, a half percent of interest goes up. And then just you have that 2008 effect where you get subprime mortgages. Everybody doesn't aware. Um, I think the reason for that um, lack of awareness is just people have accepted. This is the norm. Uh, I have a size, sense of entitlement. Um, you owe me this. Uh, it's my money that those words have been used, whether it's marketing or government or just people kind of progressing. And now you have the millennials, if I may skip forward. Um, they're all asking for technology and apps, uh, payment apps with uh, debit cards because they don't want to use credit. They're they're scared of what people were doing in the past. Like you said, in recent history, that people are just being careless and I guess, less educated financially. And now this kind of heightened awareness where kids are going to university more, they're getting more educated and financially smarter because, again, the, I guess the cycle has continued again where now we have to penny pinch and be careful. Uh, people can't afford things as they could 20 years ago. So we've come that Taurus fashion where now kids are smarter about their money and kind of starting over almost like depression uh, 100 some odd years ago. And, and then maybe it'll cycle all over again. Who knows? Kind of so w- once we get to the point where we inject artificial intelligence, automation, robotics into this system, and you know we're not going to have as many jobs available, and we mm. start talking about things like universal basic income. Sure. Um, so just in the last week in in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, they passed a minimum wage of fifteen dollars an hour, mm. but Ironically, in Missouri and St. Louis, they passed where they will reduce their minimum wage from ten dollars an hour down to, I believe, seven seventy or seven ten. So it's it's going oh, the other way, right? And and but you know, so you start to see these things. I'm looking at this and saying, "Ooh, these are these are you know kind of universal basic income." And I'm going to just just take a quote here. Um, and we had shared this one before, but Robert Reich. Um, was the former labor secretary in the United States under President Bill Clinton from 93 to 97. And a short quote from him, he said, Mark my words, a universal basic income is coming as artificial intelligence and robots eat away good jobs. A new policy brief from the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, is a unique forum where the governments of 34 democracies with market economies work with each other as well as with more than 70 non-member economies to promote economic growth, prosperity, and sustainability development. Now, a few things. I looked up the OECD. Um, both Canada and the United States are members. And I'm like, okay, I, I hadn't heard about this before. You have 34 countries involved, you work with 70. And I'm like, this seems very much almost like a new world order type concept of me saying we're going to put into place the framework of, you know, a world basic um, income. And I guess also, you know, have you seen hints of this in banking at all Um, of? I've, I've heard of different theories about getting to a global currency and China and the U.S. fighting over for the the treasury uh, country, if you will, to be able to have the ability to print money. I know the U.S. does that currently 
But um, China's, you know, number two and, and wants to the ability to have that control. And all that implica- implications with war and, and power and, and greed and all that uh, come with the printing money. I, I haven't seen too much. I, I don't get in the global scale of things, uh, but uh, it whether or not it's a world order or what have you, it's just... I guess just more from news, you see people fighting and in, in the recent um, facts with North Korea getting involved. And then the uh, the UN, like you said, kind of like um, not necessarily with money, but money, many countries are together and kind of on the same page, if you will. And then there's outliers like uh, China and Russia who don't want anything to do with this because they're probably afraid as well. Their, their economies aren't that stable uh, comparatively to the United States and to be able to bring that back, that I think that's the things that are kind of scary, and that'll kind of push the um, the the economy to go on a world scale. I, I see things like the dollar store. Uh, if you probably have those uh, yes. few bucks uh, for purchases, that um, has created a global economy. Or you'll go to say Etsy or something like that, or Fiverr, and you'll have five dollars. You'll get a service, and that's kind of created uh, it's worse than the '80s, where there's minimum wage jobs and separation. Now now these sole proprietors are competing on a global scale against economies that are worth about a third of ours. And to be able to compete is dangerous because, you know, people aren't being paid as much. They're not as happy. They're overworked. And if you bring that to um, a global scale to put everybody on a level playing field, I don't know if that would ever be possible without people just kind of butting heads and not getting along, if you will. So, uh, I don't see it a lot, but I don't think it would be good if we try to force everybody like uh, to that, especially when you see Europe and the BRIEX, that yes. sort of craziness where, again, people b- vote blindly based on what people tell them. They don't do the research. They just said, okay, the government says this is a good thing. Let's vote and we'll get majority. And then they do the research. And then what happens? Everybody wants to do a revote and the government says, no, you voted on this. It, <laughs> this is your fault sort of thing. Almost like, you you know, how you tell your girls, um, no, you're not allowed to do this. Um, you drop the ice cream on the floor for simple version. And, you know, this is something that you have to learn from. It's funny you mentioned that. Uh, my One of my daughters uh, was saving up and I placed an Amazon order late, uh, just recently. And um, she'd saved up and, and, Gave me the money for the items she wanted off of Amazon, but then had uh, uh, behavior <laughs> that did not warrant receiving the item. So when it arrives, um, it will go into you know holding until sure. she kind of earns her right to to get that back. Um, so Elijah, as I I struggle with universal uh, basic income from the standpoint of you know, but let's say. We did get to this point through AI, um, robotics, automation, and 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 so forth. That really, you know, you could work twenty hours a week, and, and maybe you can tell us what you're aware of with Sweden. I, I think they've sure. done something where they've decreased their work week and their their school week and things like that. Sure. Um, now, my my perception on that in America is that people gain sense of purpose and agency so much from their jobs of, of what they're doing um, that if you eliminate those or reduce those, I don't think people are going to be able to fill in that, that void. 
of how do I gain my sense of agency and purpose? And maybe, you know, it comes through, you know, religion or other things, but I, I guess I'm not seeing that because I'm not seeing this, this, um, growth in civic organizations. If anything, my studies indicate that civic organizations such as the JCs, Lions Club, Elks, you know, um, you know, fraternal organizations, um, you know, whatever are, are declining because people don't have the time to, or, or, you know, we'll say they don't have the time, the time or the interest because, um, you know, to participate in those things. So I'm looking at this saying, I, I'm very familiar, you know, with news articles who come out saying this corporate giant is laying off, um, you know, 3,000 computer engineers. And of that, the backstory is 15 have completed suicide the next day because they said, if I'm not an engineer anymore for this company, I'm nothing. This was everything I did, everything I had. It was there 20 years. And this, what I call it a laminating effect. And it happens much more than is ever reported upon. And people going into deep depression because they, they lose a job or a title when actually they haven't lost the skills. They've lost that, that payment, you know, that goes with that. And maybe right. what they're, they're perceiving as this, um, this, this badge of, of working. And it doesn't have to be a, a, a position like with an IB, IBM or something like that, but any position that they might end up losing. Um, and to me, that's that's really scary because I don't see where we've evolved enough as a society uh, in first world societies necessarily to to benefit from this. And maybe, but I'm I, I'm saying that from a United States perspective. What 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 have you seen as far as like Sweden and any adjustments you perceive they've made? As, as a parent, three kids, I've always liked the idea of being able to work less. I'm sure you have with two kids, um, to be able to spend more time with family. Uh, a lot of times we go to, to work for eight, 10 hours a day, work 40, 60 hours a week. And over in Sweden, I, I just kind of poking around and found out that they testing out um, six hour work weeks, um, wow. six hour work day, pardon me. So uh, six hours a day, 30 hours a week instead of 40 to 60, which is phenomenal. People say, well, this can't be done. It's expensive. But I guess when you look at the uh, the numbers, they've actually found out that people aren't uh, productive through full eight hours. You know, it, like you and I probably go to the washroom 300 times if you're bored at work or you're not feeling it or you've, you've written so many business letters and proposals today or sales pitches that you just can't handle it sort of thing or your mind just kind of gives up after a while right and it's kind of one of the reasons why that people weren't uh, efficient past that five or six hour mark so they said you know what why don't we just squish it down to six hours and see what happens um, another benefit of this you don't have to pay workers that much longer you don't have to have them sitting in seats you don't have to have the computers on the electric costs are are dwindling because um, it's it just there's no power going right so they don't have to pay for that it's almost like a big conglomerate like walmart says they're being um, energy efficient in the summertime to keep cool but really to be able to take that green movement it, it costs thousands of dollars less to switch off you know tens of rows of lights yeah um, so so there's a lot of cost benefits for that and then they took the, in the the corporate side and said okay in the schools let's take a different approach and we'll do a different style of learning where it'll be only a reduced hour uh, work week, but they became more efficient. The students, instead of writing pen and paper all day, what they did was just take um, 
learning based, uh, activity based learning rather. So they go outside and learn about nature or how the the sun interacts with the grass or what have you, and then take that on and and then learn that way while they're doing so they can kind of absorb a little better than just kind of staring at a teacher and saying, okay, great, I've learned algebra, now what? So so there's, I guess, different perspectives and how we can do things uh, differently and whether or not it's more expensive or not, uh, it's hard to say. Uh, we're obviously paying full-time wages for 30-hour work weeks. That's expensive for employers, but if you can offset the costs with the the savings of the you know running the power or having the people there or paying for cafeteria workers to be there all day, it, it may very well even out. So that was interesting to see and maybe some hope for us uh, in North America. But again, I don't know if we're ready for that. Yeah, it, and I don't know what happens to uh, people that have much wealth and want to preserve that generational wealth once a UBI comes into place. Um, I've already heard rumors that in the United States, for example, the um, federal uh, inheritance tax, you know, might be gone. And that's already at, I think, $5.4 million per person. So, I mean, a, a high number. But um, it is going to also create this, all of these efforts among, quote unquote, the financial elite to protect what money is there, because the reality is, it's it's going to be harder to maintain that going forward. Right. At least that would be kind of my perception. Um, with, with AI, uh, a lot of people are worried about the base jobs, the labor-intensive jobs, say the UPS drivers or the pizza delivery at, say, Domino's or, or Pizza Hut, what have you. Um, or you take the factory workers and they're all gone. So basically, I would say AI um, is predicted to take away all the mind-numbing jobs, if you will, all the jobs that are very repetitive. Say if you work for Dodge or Chrysler or GM uh, or even Toyota, all those jobs are fairly repetitive. Right. If robots can take those away from us, a lot of people say, well, there, there's a lot of jobs gone. What are we going to do with the economy? But that gives humans an ability to be more interested and more appreciative of the work they do. So perhaps if we can take away the, the let's call them mind-numbing jobs for fun, the labor-intensive stuff that people don't want to do, or the the cab drivers that get you know just oodles of I don't know it's just the stories you hear is just right they get treated poorly uh, so if you take that all away wipe that out and then humans can come to the next step and have some purpose in their life and then maybe they'll be more productive maybe they'll have a chance to be more educated and maybe they'll have a chance to feel more purpose and lessen those chances of suicide so it's so, really a, a renaissance. You know, phase is what we're talking about, and and are we ready for that? Right. Um, it's kind of like the industrial revolution. Now this is the technological revolution, and it's coming. People are always in fear, like they were back in the 18th, 19th century. Um, what will we be ready for it? Well, hopefully, it'll be slow enough where we're going to progress, where we have autonomous vehicles, like in the state of Michigan, is piloting that, and there's a few uh, states in Canada that are also taking that on. So. And of course, Elon Musk is making tunnels and whatever else he's doing. Uh, so it is coming, but it's just a matter of how, I guess, society works together to be able to put this in place. We'll see how it goes. Uh, for me, I don't know if, if it'll be good or not. Uh, obviously, different people will think of different ideas, but uh, I think it could be in the near term, it'll be a struggle because uh, everybody will have to make this huge shift in their ideologies, their their way of thinking, right? Their 
daily lives to say, okay, this purpose that I've had to come to work every day, put my, uh, put my hard hat on, I don't have to do that anymore. Now I have to go learn how to do something else to be more challenging and more difficult. Am I ready for that? But then on the flip side, I'll have more purpose and, and more interest in life. And then maybe I'll want to work harder. Who knows? And I, I, I think there's much benefit um, to third world countries, mm. you know, with, with the introduction of um, this type of technology and these type of resources that are very cost effective. It's, you know, even things just as basic as clean, you know, water. Sure. And and I was uh, reading an article about uh, tattoos now mm. that can change color to indicate your insulin levels. Oh, so, you know, imagine in a rural application, somebody has type 1 diabetes or something like that, or third world application, and you could actually have this serve as this, you know, pseudo medical um, tool, uh, you know, to, to give an alert and things like that. So that's neat. It's, it's really fascinating. Um, I guess if you're talking about third world countries, if I may, David, there's an interesting point I heard about cryptocurrency. Um, yes. That's kind of Bitcoin, if you're familiar, and, and others. Um, so this is uh, unregulated um, electronic currency for those who don't know. And in Africa and third world countries, I've heard that a lot of folks that are poor don't have access to banks. So what a lot of mothers will do is um, they'll have one cell phone in the city and they'll all be able to use the cell phone and share it to be able to transfer funds back and forth to receive payments for their goods. So if they're making silts, silks or clothing or say clay pots or what have you, uh, they'll be able to sell that goods to somebody else and receive the money for it. It's kind of neat. Oh, that's amazing. Even though we say we can't hold on to the paper and understand it, um, people are still be able to have some sort of uh, means to be able to not barter or trade goods, but to be able to have electronic means to pay for something, almost like, a say, a wire transfer electronically. So that's pretty cool, too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I wasn't even aware that that, that, that happened. And, and here we're worried about minimum wage and what it'll be. And people are now over there are just starting to become into to self-sufficiency and income. So it's, it's a big spread. And so, so what do you think, um, what do you think might happen with, um, you know, once, once we get to this point where we might have, uh, a law law enforcement that is, you know, AI robotic, you know, that's maybe a hundred years down, you know, or maybe not, but, but do you see that we're going to cross? And I don't know if there's a historical precedence for this, which has been non-human. Um, but are we going to cross into, um, a transference of control of our lives? You know, we've already talked about it here with the self-driving vehicles in Michigan and so forth. And, and granted, that's largely mechanical and, and, Know, programmed and geographical, but it also, you know, it's a first step. But what if it's a step of, um, you know, if if it is a um, automated, you know, uh, a, a drone or something, and, and someone pulls out a gun and you know fires on someone else, and this drone has you know programming in it to return you know fire or to immediately recognize that this is a weapon, and um, and now. now I guess as I say that, I'm kind of maybe answering my own question that technology would probably advance to the point where you could have, um, you know, non-lethal means to 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 counter that. But sure. um, 
but I'm wondering, you know, I, I guess I go back to Terminator 2 a little bit, and are we, you know, the, this fear certainly exists out there, you know, with, with technology and artif- artificial intelligence, robotics, and so forth, that we're going to surrender, um, I, I guess, uh, discretion is probably is probably the best way to describe that. You know, we exercise discretion in what we do. Um, that discretion is is going to now be in the hands of um, of a non human entity. It's it, there has been a lot of talks. Uh, if, if, if nerdier you get, the more you understand and kind of research that uh, this could very well be a new race, which is kind of interesting. And then stepping back a bit, you have the the Hal Nine Thousand and the uh, Space Odyssey 2001, that uh, being didn't have discretion. He wanted to leave, or the it, uh, the computer, Hal, wanted to leave somebody, one of the astronauts outside because he'd done something wrong. He wasn't perfect, and he didn't want people to know that he killed his other astronaut mate. So he kept him outside to push him away. That discretion is gone because he now developed emotion. But uh, it there's been a talk uh, on different documentaries, whether it be Discovery or Curiosity Minds or even, say, YouTube, uh, of singularity. And that singularity purpose is uh, we're playing with DNA uh, technology, so the human life form in technology. And then we have AI and robotics on the other side. And perhaps in two decades or three decades, they'll cross. And and then it'll become DNA with technology and we'll have the superhuman race or be able to create whatever we want. Uh, people say, use the term play God, if you will, to create this superhuman being. Um, and the more people want to progress and more people want their names in the history books, the more challenging that it'll be for people to kind of take a step back and say, hold on, are we going too far? Is this really what we want to do? Because it, there will be a point at some point where we take the singularity and modify DNA in such a way that it'll be too late. And then when it's too late, we can't retract our work. So when somebody wants to make um, a huge leap in AI technology, you almost have to take two steps back and say, okay, is this a progression we want? Because if we go two steps forward and we catapult two more steps forward, um, and then we really don't understand what we're creating. And so if we're getting human learning and emotion and, and learning elements from other human beings, it's it just kind of a big snowball effect. And if that person or if that uh, being teaches other people to be um, or other AI beings, it's hard to define what this will be, but it, it's almost like it's if there's a whole bunch of them, together they can work together and then turn if you will on human race and that's what a lot of people worried about on the other side i've i've heard a lot of talks about how it'll bring people together to force people to come together and and not make case decisions so hopefully uh, the positive side of the human race will come together and actually work towards this and then make if we're going to evolve this into a race then at least it'll be something to help uh, humans get along unlike say way back when dinosaurs ruled the world or, or ruled the word world um that that was extinct right so there was no progression beyond that right just kind of died off and whatever happened they're gone so hopefully we can evolve and and works uh, cohesively and at the same time uh, maybe we'll be able to keep some sort of track that maybe they'll live for thousands of years and then be able to take our our history books and our purpose and our and our hope and kind of drive that forward to whatever universe that looks like 
So that's kind of my dream, I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I remember, uh, you know, my grandparents and, um, you know, when they, when they passed away and, you know, we're in their seventies and eighties and now, um, you know, listening to with possible genetic, uh, you know, modification, um, you know, plus, um, you know, reproduction of parts, uh, you know, human organs and so forth in, in, in labs, plus, you know, cyber replacements of, of, you know, eyes or, you know, we've started to see something's cochlear implants. Um, and things like that. Sure. Yeah. Are, are we looking at a lifespan, which, you know, could range out into hundreds of years or unless something catastrophic happened, you know, almost indefinitely. And I, I, I read an article, Elijah, where there's a company um, we'll start experimenting with uh, deceased individuals on trying to bring them back to life. And, and it's like a 15-day process of how they would do this. So we're and, not talking about cryogenics or freezing people. This is their, their, their ticker's gone. They flatlined. Yeah. And, and okay. the, part, the part is, you know, the ethical questions, um, too, of what if you can bring them back to a state where they would have – what we would represent today as like a severe cognitive disability. And that's, that's how far you can get them back. Well then, you know, who pays for their care? You know, is, is this something this person would have wanted, you know, that they, they are severely impaired. So, um, so yeah, really scary stuff, but it's, it will commence. I mean, that people have signed on to participate, you know, in these experiments um, and, and then I think, you know, when we talk about agency and purpose, um, agency and purpose 200 years ago was, was, was you know, pretty straightforward, you know, you sure. know have, have a, a family clear some land, you know, that you got to see start to finish with your, your, your crops or, or, you know, whatever. And, um, but now, I mean, if you're, if you're stretching agency and purpose over 300 years, you know, if I'm like, you know, telling someone, I mean, of course, there'd be different things you do, but I mean, how do you, I guess, I, I think it's going to be really hard to educate people on how to sustain agency and purpose mm-hmm. over that amount of time, especially when I think religion is going to really be questioned when, you know, we can, we can, I mean, because let's, I mean, a lot of people subscribe to religion because you never knew what was happening in the afterlife. Hamlet, you know, what, you know, to, to be or not to be, it was, uh, well, if I kill myself, I could go to this paradise, which would be awesome. But if there isn't this paradise out there, I could end up just with this eternal sleep. So the to be or not to be, do it, you know, where do I go with this? Yeah. Um, and I, 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 I think it could have with religion, I I guess I find it hard to to see how religion would be sustained because the fear of death would really be gone. I mean, right. and that that's a big part of religion is you know, this is my life here and religion is my passageway into as you indicated with with um with Chin or QUIN and the dynasty. I mean, he was terrified of what was happening afterwards, so that's why he put this army together sure. to protect him through that. But you know, we're not going to really need to do that if you know that if, if something um, happens to you or, or periodically, you know, maybe there's this monitor and it is always, 
making a digital, you know, offsite replica of all of your brain patterning and waves where you could, if something did happen to you, you know, you got a tree fell on you and you're killed. There could be a replica of you that is made and, and still has your, your thoughts and whatever to a certain point within a, an hour. It's a black mirror on Netflix is what you described. Okay. I don't know if you've seen that, but no. it, it, the show takes the truth and stretches it just far enough where you almost think this is possible. And to be able to come up with ideas and te- using technology and social media and then taking that into a literal sense, like blocking somebody on Facebook or Twitter, you actually see the person grayed out and you and that person can't see you sort of thing to take that really literal sense of everything, which is kind of neat. Um, but I, I guess taking things further to have purpose, science may take over to the point where religion is not necessarily that it's not accepted, but uh, I guess um, science would take over, would take uh, one step further. So you could take that person back 15 days later, they could be in a vegetable state, but then we'll swap out their brain or whatever organ and, or put a chip in them and poof. Now they have uh, ability to walk, talk, think, and off they go. Right. Um, in hundreds of years, we're already doing this with chips and weird things and uh, wireless technology. So who knows? That could be quite possible. The afterlife won't exist. Um, we'll always just be here on the planet forever and ever and ever to go through all these trials and tribulations and cycles, almost like a vampire, I guess, to go through and live eternity. And then would we realize that this is so great after all? Would you just yeah. want to live a thousand years and say, Hey, science did this. I, I, I'm living again, sort of thing. I'm a thousand years old and people call me Noah and here right. we are. Do you think that would be so great though? Would you think that it'd be so good to have science just, want us to live forever or would people accept that? And they just said, you know what? I'm going to stick with religion. I'm going to stick with what I know and maybe less science and we'll just be happy. I, I think, um, I think society would, would have a pushback against that and, and say, you know, I, I want to live for a hundred or 150 years and then that's it. I don't want any, um, any measures to extend my life beyond that. I don't want a perpetual life. I mean, my, my parents have told me that. I mean, well, they, technology doesn't exist, but you know, they've said if, if it did exist, I, I don't want to live a thousand years. I believe, you know, you're only, and the fact, you know, it, it, it's biology for every other living organism on earth. Right. I mean, we're not going to make every turtle live, you know, indefinitely and so forth. But, um, for me, I I would not opt for perpetual existence. Um, it's weird. I, I I just I I don't I I don't know. Um, and yet, you know, we've talked about, or at least maybe I, I I've put this in, in more of a darker shade of of AI and robotics and things. But the reality is, like, we could have a very clean environment. We could have, you know food that we know would be safe to eat it could be you know almost this eden type thing because you know we're not going to have um you know gasoline powered vehicles we're not going to have coal plants and and other things we're going to we're going to evolve beyond you know these types of things right now which are degrading the environment um and in turn you know we know that our environmental state is is closely tied to purpose purpose and agency and sense of self and and things like that um but yeah, I, I, 
I, I've, I've, you know, I, I've tossed that around my mind a little bit, and, and I don't, I don't think I'd want a perpetual existence. And in reality, I mean, we're not going to have a perpetual existence unless we find another planet at some point, because sure. you know our, you know, there's a there's sun, a but yeah, um, yeah, I, or else you take into minimum wage and. Uh, and different classes. If somebody wants to pay ten thousand dollars, they'll they'll be able to t- put the flip the switch and say, okay, you can have perpetual life. Or somebody else that's poor and say they're they're not able to afford, then they'll turn off their switch earlier, perhaps. Uh, dark, sorry. But, yeah, no, uh, I, I I agree. If, if you're going into that world, then anything's possible. If you're talking about, say, if somebody wants to be have brown or 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 blonde hair. Um, they can do that with DNA manipulation, but you can also kind of take that too far. I think that's really the, the kind of the point that I get back on, David, is just if it goes too far, we're in trouble. And yeah. and if we go too far, it may be a whole nother revolution where we'll just kind of go back to 300 years ago, stick to our farms and just have a, a nice family and just live a simple life again. Never know, that might go too far and then we'll just kind of society reject it altogether, come back and then full circle 300 years ago stick to farming and plows. I didn't grow up on a farm, so I'm in trouble, Elijah. <laughs> yeah, well, me too. <laughs> I, I have longer arms so I can reach the trees for the apples right. and the rest off to figure out. Are you are you familiar with deaf culture at all? Has has no. Okay. Um Please. you know so I, I I work with the Wisconsin School for the Blind. And uh our partner school is the Wisconsin School for the Deaf. And there is there is such a thing as deaf culture, meaning um, if the parents are deaf and they have a child who's deaf, um, the parents typically, typically do not want that child to have a cochlear implant. Or if they were given the opportunity to suddenly have hearing, they would say, no, that takes you out of our culture. And oh. it's very strong. Um I, I teach a few college classes and in inclusion of students with disabilities, and some people will pick this as a course, um, a, a final course project is to examine deaf culture. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it is something. And I said, you know, at some point, disability will become, you know, obsolete. Disability will be, or, or the potential um, to make it obsolete. You'll be able to to modify that through, um, yeah, you know, DNA engineering or or yeah, if it's some kind of you know cerebral palsy, there would be some kind of um, device which would would then you know monitor the electrical signals going to the muscles and so forth. So I said, you know, we're on it. We're on a course, and you know, so definitely, of course, I see that as being good. You know, I, I work with you know students who are young, you know, young people who are blind and and tremendous people. But I don't think any of the students I work with, if I said um, you know, you have the option to be blind or to be sighted, which would you take? They would take sighted. They would not, you know, they would, but the deaf culture is different. The deaf culture definitely stays within the culture, which I, I guess it's just, it's throwing it out there. It's, it's a phenomenon if anyone wants to look into it a little bit more, but there's this, yeah. this shunning that occurs. Yeah. If your child has received a cochlear implant where you could lose your friends who are deaf, uh, because, you know, you, you've taken that taken that step um, it's like um it's old old order amish um not obviously completely different from deaf culture but it reminds me that sort of what we'll call segregated community yeah um, often if you tried there's been 
I don't know how true the reality TV show is on TLC or what have you, but there's actually getting out of that Amish culture that uh, I'm getting out of this uh, religion and, and way of life. Uh, you, you go to the normal society, if you will, and you're, you're shunned. You can't get back in. Um, so I, I guess a lot of people still hold on to the beliefs that they have and then society doesn't accept them as willingly. And maybe that just pride takes over and says, you know what, uh, we have to hang on to this because future generations won't understand uh, how impactful uh, perhaps this life actually is on society. It's quite possible. Yeah, and self, you know, perception is in the eye of the beholder and this, you know, interrater reliability of of what people see as as society and being correct in society and so forth. I mean, that is is so varied. Um I, I want to touch on something sure. um that, that we went we talked about earlier. So so let's say you did have a perpetual lifespan and you get up in the morning. Um so Elijah, what do you think would be the motivation when you know today is not going to be much different than five hundred and eighty four days from now, like that toroidal zone that I talked about right. um and even things like um you know right now we deal with hurricanes and and you know things like that which are which are bad but also introduce um noise into our lives and cause us to change and often um you know bring forward changes in character and things like that. And, and those things, I mean, I would have to assume would largely be controlled, you know, with technology down the road too. But so if I get up and, um, you know, I, I go through my day and I go to bed and it's, it's Groundhog's Day. That's what, it, you know, with Bill Murray, it is getting up yeah. and it's the same thing. And I, I, I guess wouldn't, I would expect that's what would, would, largely be there you'd be in this toroidal right. zone there wouldn't be a lot of surprises because even like if there's an asteroid that is you know heading toward earth well you know the technology would have detected that way ahead of time and would have remedied that so again your your threats to self and your need for sense making and situational awareness probably pretty low i mean you can have a le more leisurely lifestyle more enjoying but um I guess is there a fatigue in that? Is is there a oh, you know this again? And it's it's really strange because I don't think there'd be that sense of urgency. I think people want to climb the corporate ladder or to be able to do everything, fulfill their bucket list, if you will, in the short eighty-year span that most people have. But if you live a perpetual life, where's what's the hurry? Where's the sense of urgency? Where? Is the success rate? How am I going to measure this when I don't know when the end of time is? So if I'm looking to, say, have children or grandkids or like 13 generations of grandkids, I think there would lead to a whole lot of other sense of depression and kind of lack of purpose because your whole reality shifts and you're, you are the Groundhog Day and Bill Murray and you just go through life. And then I think he just swears at the weather and then he just just kind of ruins people's day and just turns into a prankster because his sense of pride and happiness and just purpose is shot out the window. We think that this sense of perfection and longevity is incredible, but if you're doing it over and over again, I mean, you, you could see the world 25 times over. Uh, it's not exciting anymore. And to take in every breath of air uh, that we take in because we appreciate life, it's short. 
uh, there is that urgency and pride, but if there's nothing to live for, you're just going to live on forever in a kind of dark sense. But yeah, that's, I'm just here. I'm existing. Now what? I talked to somebody who, um, you know, really got into hiking in their thirties and went and hiked, you know, like all around the world and things. And, and, and just, it was fulfilling and, and these, these new things, but then said, you know, once I went and did all of this, once I got to the second, third time around, it really lost its, I, I wasn't fulfilled by it. And, and now to the point where, you know, I, I, I don't even like to do it as much anymore. Like I'll do it, but, um, you know, so getting into other things, but one of those things too of, um, yeah, you know, once you've, you've done it, um, I mean, there's so many times you can climb Mount Everest and even for myself and for you, I mean, one of the things I like to do is I, I love biking. So sure. you know, I'll go out and I'll bike like 80 miles and I'll, you know, plot out the trek and, um, you know, the first, the first five to eight bike rides of the season are pretty exciting. And, but after that, you know, um, your mind or my mind starts to wander a little bit and on the way back on the treks, even though I love biking, it's things I've seen trees, I've seen stuff. And even if you go every place, I mean, it's still kind of the same to some extent. Um, and it's like, you know, I know this is great for me and I do like it. And I, I, I like my body feeling strong and, and stuff, but still like, yeah, you know, like I've, I've, I've done this. And even though this is my passion, like, and the scenery, you know, is changing a little bit, but I've done it, you know, and on the way back, then you'll just call your friend up and say, come pick me up and just go for a car ride instead. Or you'll get your car autonomous vehicle to come pick you up or it'll follow you along. Who knows? It's it, yeah, it's not the same. What's the point? I'll just do some other mode of transportation or, or maybe you won't go out at all because you have the 80 miles and that that's a piece of cake. Now you go so far and then you don't want to come back because it's just, boring or you're tired or you just feel like doing something else so it's a kind of interesting think about you know we were when we were at disney um in march they have uh wristbands which uh can gps identify where you're at now and this they've always had some level of this but apparently this was new they were telling us so it, the wristbands allowed you to get into your door charge you know all of your so basically it's cashless you know you, i the whole time we're down there, you know, I didn't even have my identity on me in the park. Um, mm -hmm. And it would, it, you get off of rides or whatever, and it would say, thank you, David, for, you know, it, and the other names for being on this ride. And the thought of if, if you had a lost child and you were within the park, they could identify where you were at in the park and reunite you. And somebody asked me, they said, did that really freak you out? And I was like, no, I never thought about it in that way. I thought about it as a positive evolution of technology of, of yeah, now I don't have to carry a wallet with me. Um, I can get into my room this way. If there's anything that happens to me medically, you know, then someone knows I, um, who I am if one of my kids gets, or you know. Or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah, off in an area and I don't know where they're at. And they go to, to a Disney worker. The Disney worker can scan, you know, their thing. And then they would take pictures of us. You know they they have they have photographers all over they and they take your picture and then you go up and they swipe your band and instantly it goes into your email and oh. and the photo that they just took is emailed to you um and and just the amazing so 
So yeah, looking at that, I'm like, that's all awesome. Like those are all awesome things that technology has brought forward to that experience and has made that experience better for me to be able to enjoy without, yeah, worrying about the kids, worrying about, yeah, having, you know, a wallet on me and two, you know, going through Splash Mountain and hoping my dollar bill doesn't get saturated or whatever it is. But um, I I know we've been talking for a while, and, and one thing I wanted to, to get your thought on is, what do you think is going to motivate people in the future? And it, as you say that, I'm, I'm going to go back to something I learned uh, uh, in a recent uh, podcast that I developed about World War II uh, infantry motivation. It's um, a motivation to uh, be, become more accessible. Uh, yeah, I guess it's kind of, again, it's a, something we need to get used to because it's not the norm. Uh, you have to get used to a reduction of privacy to have the, the, the luxury of efficiency like yourself with the band. It, it knows you. It, it knows exactly where you are in the park. It knows how long you've had to wait. It knows where you go for lunch. It knows all, all the different da- pieces of data points uh, to make the park more better. But not everybody's ready to have Big Brother watching to be able to create these efficiencies, and they want some sort of privacy. Uh, there's different futuristic cities that kind of dreamed about and uh, the people have kind of created to be able to put different sensors in the streets and different cameras all over the place to be able to monitor people to make them feel safe, but at what cost, right? So that that's kind of tricky. Um, I, I think we'd have to get over that sense of freedom uh, to be able to get used to not having that same freedom in exchange for privacy or the luxury of efficiencies before we can even introduce uh, making that change. I'm not too sure what that trigger or benefit will be, or if it's by force from governments uh, to get, say, commoners like us to be able to adjust, but that's the the crucial piece. So I, I don't even know if I could think that far to be able to explain what it'll be like without us being willing to, to go through that motion of change. Uh, we're used to Facebook and Twitter taking all of our data and uh, the free apps that we have that are taking our data and, and doing something with it, probably even Skype now records stuff or consoles, uh, video game consoles will record things and just listen for that cue, almost like Apple and Siri or something like that, where or Amazon Echo. Um, all of that data is going somewhere and being saved. Um, will we be ready to lose all of our freedom in exchange for that that the pleasure, I guess you could say? Do you think so? Um, maybe I took I, that where else, uh, in a different direction you're thinking might kind of, kind of wonder why I'm talking about privacy. It, it kind of wanders off and kind of think of what if, so, um, it, it just, just curious to think what society, how they'll react before we kind of get there. I have, uh, I have a neighbor who is mm-hmm. one of two commercial drone, um, pilots in our County. Okay. And so he uses his drone for professional purposes of checking, um, you know, wind turbines and, and actually has the ability with his, his drone to fly over a um, gravel pit and okay. can fly over in the morning and has scanners then to identify how much gravel is there, can fly over at the end of the day and then tell you how much gravel has been removed. So you don't even have to weigh the vehicles anymore. It is just done through this process. But yeah. he, but he's talking to me and he said, 
Yeah, I've done flyovers of our neighborhood, and I could just plug this in and print off a 3D map and and all of this stuff, and and I can zoom in and, and you know I could read a piece of paper that you you know or the newspaper if you're out on your backyard, oh. and um and, and you know I trust him, but he's going over this and talking about the laws and and you know because I, I said wasn't isn't there a law that you can only fly over like once? He said, well, no. Like you could do this and this and this. And he said, actually, you know, like if I wanted to, um, you know, the, the amount of detail I could find out about anybody would be just, you know, astounding. Um, just, you know, through the, through this drone capacity. Now, you know, we flip it around and he's, he was talking about a friend that had a drone and was called into a rescue of a missing like boy with autism, young child. Mm-hmm. And so I, I interviewed a search and rescue dog handler, and she talked about this very intricate process of having to get two-way radios together and how, you know, you coordinate with your teams and zones and the dogs fatigue actually pretty rapidly. And he comes out with this drone, and in an hour they find the kid because he's up and he, wow. can, he can detect heat zones and all of that. And, and the kid's fine, you know, and he does this. Good. Um, but it's scary. You know, he's talking to me then and giving me kind of all of the other things that this drone is capable of of doing and especially you know i'm thinking with personal privacy you know if, if you had somebody you know we you know we read about these cases all the time of stalkers or things like that well you know you get your hands on a drone now personal privacy is pretty much out the window you know you can fly up yep. above somebody's apartment or their house and know when they're coming in who they're coming in with you know um snapshots so so that part is is I mean it's a natural evolution, but in the hands of somebody, and you, you can buy you know you know you can buy these things at Costco. Um, uh, the, in the hands of somebody who wants to use it in that capacity, it opens up a whole realm of uh, invasiveness that you could have only gotten by overtly breaking the law. While here you're fringing the law, and and it's it's it. To me, it I mean, there's like you said, there's a lot of things you can do, which technically you're not breaking the law. Like you can have a park that says you can't fly a drone here, but the, what the law means is um, you can't fly a drone in the park. You can stand a foot outside the park, raise your drone up, and fly it wherever you want over the park. That the oh. FEA doesn't allow municipal municipalities to to put this regulation on that overlays and the FAA regulation that that would. Um, say that this this is priority over FAA. So, um, but yeah, so so that kind of freaks me out. And, and then I guess you know we we're talking about motivators. Um, and back in World War II, so the average day in the in and again you know war is going to completely change because war is going to become either just non-existent or it's it's going to be probably drone based or or whatever. I mean. Our reality today of ICBMs, well, you know, you'd have technology that would would be able to make sure that a launch never even occurred. Um, but back in the fifth um, uh, fifth army, you know, which was Sicily, um, North Africa, very overfought army, and the infantrymen, if you lasted two hundred and thirty eight aggregate days of combat, like that was the tops. You were either a physical casualty, prisoner of war, or psychiatric casualty. And actually, in, in before 
And, and during World War II and before, if you cracked under pressure, and I'm just saying this as the vernacular that was used, the shell shock, uh, battle fatigue, like that was seen as a weakness in you. And you were like, you know, discharged out of the military and that's a, that's a fault with you. And today where it's changed, I mean, now it's looked at, it used to be looked at as PTSD that actually has evolved to PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury um, of just, and, and really brain-based, that makes sense of saying the brain can only handle so much cumulative stress before it, it can't process that stress anymore. Um, down, yeah. But but in World War II, so they took the Fifth Army, and, and you know morale is declined, and 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 your chance of survival, and they're trying to figure out what will what will these soldiers, what can motivate them. So they had a few approaches. One is they did videos. Why we fight? You can go on YouTube, and Frank Capra, you know, famous Hollywood producer worked with um, Dr. Seuss and we all know Dr. Seuss and the cat in the hat. Yeah. Dr. Seuss sure. also had a very, you know, dark side with propaganda, um, you know, anti-American Japanese and, and um, also, you know, basically propaganda of, you know, you, it, you need to do your part and you can't be weak. And it, again, if you were a battle fatigue was seen as a weakness and that you'd failed the country. Um, and this was all being exposed. I mean, and, and, but uh, what was going to be the difference maker? So one was, we just need to show videos of like why you need to fight, how horrible Germany and Japan and Italy are, and, you know, that you need to rise to the occasion. And, and if you don't do this, you know, your your families are all going to be, you know, pillaged by, by you know, these, these foreign countries and, and so forth and everything that, that you've worked for, your, your dreams and your everything will be gone. So propaganda. That didn't work. People, you know, it's like watching a Rocky movie or some, some, you know, Independence Day or whatever movie. You're fired up at two hours after you get out of the theater, you can do anything, you know, and then sure. after that reality sets in. Um, but what, what they, what they found, then they're like, well, we can double the pay and we can, we can increase the pay of frontline, um, infantrymen. And they were like, no, it doesn't, we're not going to do it. But then they said, we're going to give you a blue patch, a shoulder patch, a blue shoulder patch. So maybe cost a quarter. And it's only for you, for your frontline infantry. Um, and this is a badge of honor. It's a badge of pride because you're fighting on the front line. And that made all the difference, that badge. And people in other divisions in like artillery would say, well, we want our badge. And they're saying, military's like, nope, this is only for infantry. And what would happen? Some artillery soldiers would transfer from what was a safer self-preservation into frontline military for that 25 cent patch. So this whole psychology too of what motivates people and what doesn't, completely irrational. And even, yeah. you know, when I talked about the, and I'm writing my book about the 9-11 boat rescue, 500,000 people. My friend, I, I talked about the travels of the world and she's in her twenties and she's been to Haiti like 14 times. You know, she said in Haiti, she, when she delivers humanitarian aid, like bags of rice, you know, people are ready to punch her. Uh, they, you know, they are fighting each other to get up to wherever this distribution of, of wow. resources is. Um, and yet on 9-11, we had a very orderly rescue of 500,000 people. We didn't have anyone, you know, in, in, you know, after the second tower goes, after tower seven goes, and it's it's this. And I have, I remind people. I'm like, it was very dynamic. People didn't know if the mine was heart was was um, my if the harbor was mined, and we had um, 
you know, what was it? Um, you know, boats in Yemen, which would be, you know, loaded up with explosives and then like just driven into, you know, Navy ships and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if the, uh, bridges, you know, had explosives. So this was still very dynamic. And was there another plane out there that just hadn't come in yet? Were there timed explosives? Um, but it was very, very orderly of how this, of how this rescue happened. And I get into a theory on that, which no one else has gotten into. Um, and I get into the theory of transference and, and it's really only specific maybe to that point in time to some extent. Um, but transference of saying, let's do, let's look at the demography of who was, who was evacuated. And the average person, a typical, I guess, that made up the majority, they worked in lower Manhattan in the financial district. So that was your majority. So, you know, 40 years old, educated. Um, you know, so you have an IQ above average and, but you also, then there's another part in this. And, and this is where I think everybody missed this. And I worked with, um, a number of experts around the world and some agree with me and some don't, but this is, this is my book. Um, I say transference occurred. These people were born in, let's say 1960, 61, you know, they grew up during the cold war and in the United States during the cold war. We we saw CNN in 1980 went 24 hour news and what were they showing? They were showing Russian parades of ballistic missiles, you know, up and down the roads and and I was raised during this this era somewhat too, and you just felt the Soviet Union was the enemy, you know, and 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 you had to be with NATO and the and the military was there to protect you, so that was the thing. You always saw the U.S. military. There was no questioning of the military. So when people come to the harbor. There were 134 boats in this rescue. Most were tugs, 50, but there were num- uh, some Coast Guard. And I think the moment you see that out there, you give transference of saying, I was raised at a time when I was told to believe in the government, that mm. the military would say, you know, be there to rescue us. Um, and do you by chance, uh, Elijah, remember the 1983 ABC documentary, or not documentary, but it was a movie called The Day After? Um, Parts of it. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so anyone listening, you can go online and, and, and find it through, you know, YouTube, but the day after, and it was very controversial when it, when it came out, um, was what it would be like if there was an all out, um, you know, a nuclear war between the United States and Russia. Hmm. And it actually, uh, Gorbachev and Reagan both came out later and said the movie, um, led to them, um, signing treaties for military, uh, ICBM reduction. The, the, really? I mean, it, it's very visceral. To, to, it, very visceral. Um, so, so yeah. It, it, the strangest part is, you know, nine eleven. It should have been chaos. It should. It was chaos, but it had this toroidal system that developed, and people weren't pushing over other people, even though the buildings are collapsing in back of them. Right. Um, I think because of this transference, because of when they're raised, they're like, okay. But you and I, I mean, we're rational. If you get a couple people just. And engage in a discussion for a minute and say, you know what? There's 500,000 people of us. I mean, you can see no one has obviously ever planned for this. We don't know what this is at. Um, and there's boats out there, and they've obviously never coordinated for this. This is illogical that this is going to work. But the fact that people didn't go there, they just said this, this blind transference, um, I think is the reason that was successful. Because I sure. I believe it should have been chaotic. It should have been a mob. It should have been like evacuate, you know, like from a hurricane or anything else. And um, 
really, really strange. No one kind of went there and I dug into it and I dug into it with some of the world experts. Um, and again, not everyone kind of agrees to that, but this transference of, of what we're told. And then when situations manifest later in life that, that we, we make those connections. So I don't know. I, I, I just thought it was really interesting. The whole book centers and it talks um, about it. And this, this fact of how this, this kind of miniature system developed. And actually it goes against systems thinking too. Uh, Russell Acoff, are you familiar with Dr. Russell Acoff and systems thinking Not kind of branched sure. off on Deming a lot. Um, no. You know, you know, he would say that, you know, if you had a machine, you know, let's say you have a Mercedes, if you put in a, uh, um, a Hyundai motor, even if it's the best Hyundai motor, the Mercedes won't work because, you know, the parts aren't, compatible they're not designed which kind of makes sense but at the same time as i looked at the rescue i was saying all of these parts came together sightseeing boats people tug boats people different levels of expertise um and it created a system that only had to exist for about nine ten hours and then dissolve so i i think these short-term systems can exist now now what that means and what we're thinking all this i don't know um in the long term um but I, I think it was a moment in time. People try to analyze that and compare it to Oklahoma City. And then what if 9-11, hap- something like this happens years from now? Well, I mean, it, it probably wouldn't because you'd have the ability to land planes, you know, remotely. Um, you know, it's just like if if somebody is leaving a job and they have a ID badge, it gets them in the building. You can stun the badge so it doesn't have effect anymore. Um I, I I don't know. I kind of went off a little bit on a tangent there. Any thoughts? I, I don't know if the transference almost uh, stems from a state of shock or maybe an underappreciation for what's going on. Some people just kind of sit there and panic. You're right. And when they know what's going on, say a fire or an earthquake or a tornado, hurricane, they know what that is. But when you have people that are coming at pla- using planes to take out you know, giant skyscrapers. We don't, we don't know what that is. Never seen that here, at least uh, in North America. So to be able to put that into some sort of, I don't know, explanation, uh, it's almost impossible. And that goes back to say the 283 days uh, that you will, or the 250 days in war. It almost comes to the point where in instant uh, that 283 days is passed and now in seconds, your mind can't take this because it's too much. And then that, that it's almost like your mind kind of takes over and you, you come into the state of protection. I guess it's what your body's doing to say, don't panic. It's going to be okay. You just got to be calm and cool. Almost like, um, almost like a button or switch. It's almost like a adrenaline kicks in and then all the state of mind comes through and says, you know what, um, just focus, let's go. Or else people are just kind of, in shock and and looking for that leadership to be able to say, um, this is, this is what we need to do. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's almost like in my mind that uh, time pauses for an instant second. And then all of a sudden, poof, somebody gives direction and off we can go and breathe again. Uh, that's kind of where, where I am at the, the shock, but either way, I don't think it's something that we could prepare for or just, explain any day it's just one of those things where everybody kind of just reacts and comes together and they're just one thing they have in mind is just to survive and they're all going to do what they can 
to come together as a decent human beings and then create that survival tactic. And perhaps that will, will, that's what we'll do with our next generation of AI. That's, that's what we'll do going forward. But that one piece of solidarity versus all this talk of war is kind of frustrating. If we could do more of that to come together and, and work together and get 500 people to survive, perhaps we can keep, we're capable of anything. And then, and you know, several hundred years from now won't be so bad. And I think there's a lot to be learned from the rescue of Lower Manhattan about, as you indicated, solidarity and how people mm-hmm. can work together. And if sure. we start to create a transference now um, of of seeing how AI automation, how it is benefiting us, um, that then as changes occur down the, the road that maybe more directly impact us, that we will have... You know, not that we're submitting our faith over into AI, but but we will will consciously um, accept that interaction with AI versus pulling back. Because what happens? You know, people become anxious of the unknown. That's always that's always the case. And and when working with students who are visually impaired, right off the bat, that's something in in working with you know helping kids get jobs in the community or something people say it's a great kid but i don't know how to work with a kid who's blind i'm like well it's not that much different than working with whatever and here's some things and once you get beyond that you answer some of those questions so i think our tra- our transference for the generation of today is really the how we start to get kids in in and prepping in young adults prepping for transference into a society which if they go to a hospital and you know and some of their care might be delivered through, uh, you know, a, a robot that's coming in to take, you know, instead of a nurse is coming in to take pulse and whatever. And maybe it has a face and an Im- image and things like that. Or maybe it is, you know, we already see remote what, um, you know, a patient lives an hour and a half from the hospital. So the, the, the hospital gives them an iPad and says, log in, show us the the knee, you know, move it, you know, after your knee surgery so much, tell us what you're doing. The doctor's on the screen. Okay. It looks good. And, and, you know, there we go. Sure. It's, it's happening. And, and even apps that have doctors that are available for those who don't have the readily available or maybe the clinics full, but to be able to, to be able to have that purpose or to, to bring out the dad cheese in me to, to get that hope and inspiration. It kind of reminds me of, I guess, John Lennon's imagine. You know, there's this, even in the 60s, he's talking about the freedoms and imagine how people can be just cohesive and get together and and, and just get all this, um, I guess, in this mushy state of just happiness and freedom and just enjoying life in the simple human pleasures. And like you said, if somebody's visually impaired or has Down syndrome, remove that barrier and just say, you know what, you're a person or David's a person or Elijah's a person. We're just talking and and, and interacting and, and trying to coexist to be able to better our, our generation's lives from here on in. When, when I started Elijah and I know we're, we're in, we're in wrap up mode now. Um, you know, when I started to work with, with kids who are blind, I hadn't ever worked with a kid who was blind. And, um, and I did that, you know, later in my career. Um, and it was actually a high school student who taught me Braille. And so I can, I can read Braille, which is much different huh. than being able to do tactile Braille. And I can read sure. very basic Braille, but it's functional and actually I don't need to use Me. it a lot. Um, but it was one of those things where I asked somebody who had worked at the school who I trusted, 
who went into that situation a few years prior had had worked as a math teacher in a high school, traditional high school, and and um, left to go down and, and to work at this school. It's really an awesome place. Um, first of all, it's really it's really phenomenal. It's a quarter mile long. The students stay there during the week, so there are, are residence halls. There's a pool. There's a theater. You know, gym. I mean, awesome. it's really it's really cool. So there's also mm-hmm. this family you know aspect of it, but. Um, but I remember asking him, like, how do you learn this stuff? Like, how do you learn this? Or like, if a, a child's using a cane or whatever, and he's like, you just do. Like, the, the kids will teach you, and you'll be so it'll be so much of your environment, and and you'll just get it, and boom, you get it. And it is it it's shown for me. It's been a ton of growth because I teach the university level um, college or courses on inclusion of students with disability, and I sure. can start talking about my experiences with that. But then also in safety. Like, you know, I, I work with keeping the campus safe from active shooter situations and fire drills and things like that. And, and so I've, I've had to reshift my thinking in, um, you know, what if you don't have the modality of sight available to you? How do you respond to an active shooter situation as a student and come up with new protocols for that, which has really helped me professionally, um, you know, too. And so. In closing, and I don't know, I mean, I could go on forever, Elijah. This is a great conversation. I, I think For people sure. are really going to, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, find find this to be, I think, a good conversation to listen in on. And It's interesting, um, and it gives a lot of perspective. So I think there's a lot of meat and potatoes, and you're right. I could kind of just switch off to technology side or talk about learning Braille and American Sign Language and then go into part two, but... You know, there's only so much that people can sit down and, and listen, right? So that's the tough thing. So, so yeah. Um, so I'm going to, I, I wanted to get your thought on this because I've asked sure. other podcasters and uh, I love podcasting. I'm new to podcasting. Again, this is something, you know, who would have thought this would have existed? But to me, um, you know, and I have a PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I consider the podcasts that I download, including Nerdy by Nature um, and and Readily Random, a, a number of podcasts that inform me on topics that are all over the place but come together in helping me to think about different aspects of history or science or society. And I, I've actually told people, well, one is I, I, don't, I don't partake in the mainstream media anymore. I, I've just kind of burned out on it. Um, and that's just me, but I don't like someone could say, did you know that this happened? Whatever I say, I don't know. Or, or, um, you know, I've kind of had my fill of sports. I mean, not that I'm anti-sports. I went to every Green Bay Packers game in the 1990s, um, every home game, but you know, I could, you know, yeah, (laughs) you know, and I'll go to some games, but it's not like I live and die. I have like one Packers shirt, um, and, and. You know things like that, but actually, this this office, this studio behind me, up until just a few years ago, was just all Packer memorabilia and stuff like that. And I was kind of like, "Nah, I need to, I need to change it." That was kind of a different time in life. But sure. I see podcasting also as the societal evolution, and it's happening rapidly. And I see it as a very good thing, versus um, you know necessarily facebook instagram some of those things which are very reactionary you don't need to put much thought into them and not very deep but podcast you're developing your script you're getting to work with more intricate technology focusing in on an audience and then for the consumers of podcasts to have it available 
and to download. There, there's a podcast. I, I was interested in the Oroville Dam in California, the biggest dam, 700 feet in Cal. I don't know if it's the tallest dam in the U.S., I think. And they had issues with the spillway. And, and there was um, a guy who took on just basically covering this and putting together little shows. And he has an airplane he'll fly over and then he'll edit stuff together. And he goes to the town meetings. And and I'm like, I just got hooked on this. Like he, the science I was learning about how water cavitates and as water goes down, the, um, I don't know, the, the drainage spill or whatever, how if it, if it, if the spill isn't, totally flat you know it has ripples in it it you know gets gets air bubbles and they basically act like a hammering effect and he's talking about this in in ways like i never knew about and i'm like wow this is really cool so right i i see podcasting is opening up this whole other avenue for society for creativity for information for knowledge that that is removed from rhetoric and is can give people education and almost this this i call it my post doctorate as i listen to my commute I mean, do you feel the same or, or different or it's, it's, partial? Or? I, I think it's kind of interesting because you're going back to George Orson Welles in the 1930s with the old radio shows, uh, the old musicals, and they just took, uh, just kind of took this new technology and kind of discovered what they could do with it, which is pretty cool. Um, th- now with podcasting, it's kind of come with technology. It's readily, readily available and sourced for people. Like you said, you can just download in seconds, but yet we're taking that conversation that old school mentality that's um that historical factor the simple times in life and just having conversations about what's important to us for me i just talked about uh, a recorded episode about chicago and the history of that how in the 1850s they were the first ones to come up with a sewer system because they were on the the sea level uh, you couldn't go under it's too flat okay so um, to get rid of all this filth and waste on on the streets, you had to lift up the city, and that was eight nine feet, uh, four to nineteen, four to fourteen feet up in the air. Um, at one point, it was six thousand of these. Um, these I forget the name of them now. Pardon me, but they were the um, the devices that lifted up um, trains back in the day. So they some sort of ties that you just twist and there's 36, 000, sorry, 6,000 of these and 35,000 square feet. And there was, so 10, 600 workers, 6,000 of these devices, and it goes up the hotel or a whole city block. I mean, that stuff you never think about. And Chicago now has a, a sewer system that is taken for granted. And these hundreds and thousands of people came in through the city and realized that, all these people have to do this job this that nobody ever think of to to be able to make sure that people exist and, and that's kind of the stuff that I get into all those hidden treasures and nuggets the stuff that you don't see on a daily basis like the 24 hour CN news um, or the Fox News all that stuff that's kind of mind numbing you can get into podcasting and then you can explore uh, as I say to discover the world around us for my podcast and just kind of get into things that are different and interesting and inspiring and you can go around and pick whatever you want whether it's science or accounting or even the safety doc you know that's for me really cool and then you take the social media and have a conversation about it with your friends or fans or whoever and then everybody's learning and it creates a spiral effect which yeah. is really, i guess that's kind of the the essence right there it's just 
how amazing this really is uh, to be able to take a simple uh, technology, take a bit of an old-fashioned radio feel, blend them together, and now we're, we're coexisting, and now we're getting out of the uh, traditional uh, propaganda of Seuss. We're getting into real conversations and truths and even stuff we want to talk about. Like I said, whether it be science or retro gaming or or you want to talk about horses, I don't care. It's what people love. Do it. And that's what's so great about it. Yeah, what you just shared about Chicago, fascinating. I, I had no idea. Fascinating. And you're closer to Chicago than I am. I know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, you know, any anything else, Elijah, that, that you want to touch on today? I think we did a good job. Uh, some other point, we'll have to come back and figure out how we're going to uh, find something else that uh, troubles us. But society, I think, was pretty good today. Um, I, I think that we kind of went from, you know, olden days to today and and then back around in a bunch of uh, tour circles. Uh, we did okay. And for people to, to hear kind of that uh, perspective, I guess, to stretch out timeline of 2,000 years and to really figure out that we're not really that much different. Um, I think that's kind of neat. And I think that's enough for me and powerful enough to leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I, I think it's an exciting time, um, you know, to to be alive. Um, and for I'm sure. very thankful for, you know, what podcasts have, have brought forward and especially the fact that we're doing this today. Um, sure. So again, you know, I, I, have, uh, I have my Safety Doc podcast and I appreciate um, you know, that, that you've had kind words to say about that. I'm still finding my way with, with that. Um, and, but I do feel that, you know, that the, the show has, has come together much, you know, since the, the first few episodes, cause safety is so, so sure. diverse. I mean, you can get into physical safety, psychological safety. So I try to, to, to dance in, in all of those, uh, you know, different, you know, barns and, and then come back and, interview you know a number of people who have expertise in different areas and 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 i love i love your show uh because as as you said you know you you uh, you can um bring forward something that everybody has overlooked which if that's that didn't happen that one component what exists today as we know it like chicago wouldn't wouldn't be there you know, right. it's kind uh, of wild. so it, it's, it is wild. It's fascinating. And I just, I just love that. I just love that stuff. And, and so between the both, I guess, David, whether it be nerdy by nature or the safety doc, we both kind of take ner- elements of just learning and interesting facts. Uh, you talk about different subjects and I do clearly, but you know, we both find these kind of different things, learning, um, different things of learning interesting because it's, it's something that we're not aware of. It's something that stimulates the mind and, and something that you can kind of take back to the water cooler and you know, pretend to be smart for a day or two. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. And, and people are talking about things that they want to, and they could be themselves and, and like-minded people just jump on board because they find you interesting and they like you. And, and then eventually it'll just, it just grow from there. So for, for me, if I could say being here in a year, I'm kind of new, but if you focus on being yourself, it'll just kind of go along with the punches and it'll evolve for you. It'll get there. Not to worry. Yeah. Well, my mic boom will be here soon. And, and, uh, oh, no. 
<laughs> you'd be you'd be podcasting out in the shed with your lawnmower, whatever it is. If that boom goes far enough, you'll be there. It'll be good. Yeah, yeah. I, in the pool. I was talking to one one podcaster, and and he actually created a podcasting, as you say, shed, and he hung all of these blankets and stuff in to get the the dampening effect. I mean, now right. he's really into the technical side of of reducing. You know any any background noise, so I get a kick out of that because he sent me a picture of it, and it is just solely designed for this purpose. And and, uh, and he's kind of like in his little shroud as as he's as he's doing his podcast. So it's 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 funny, funny, but good content, and and I get a kick out of that. That won't be happening down here, by the way. So <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with the Canadian fellow Red Green, but it kind of reminds me of the yes. Possum Lodge. Yes, and if, yes. You ever, if, if, if people don't know about the Possum Lodge, please look it up. It's one of those great st- Canadian stereotypes that this uh, gentleman with white beard takes on to, to a perfect tea. And yeah, I think your friend in the shed has a Possum Lodge of podcasting. <laughs> Perhaps you'll appreciate that. Thanks well, Elijah, I, I just can't thank you enough for today. Um, people listening to this, what's going to happen is I'm going to edit a version of this for the safety doc podcast. And then, um, Elijah will take a version of this for nerdy by nature. So this collaborative, um, episode, it's the first time I've done this in my 35 episodes. I really enjoyed it. And I think between our two audiences, um, that this will, this will offer something to both of those audiences. Definitely. I think so as well. It was a lot of fun. And, and myself, I've, I haven't done a, uh, I try to keep my podcast in half an hour to be fairly succinct in, in audio, but on, on YouTube, you have a lot to, to be able to take on. And we covered a lot of different things in this somewhat short period of time considering. So, uh, I think we did well. It was a lot of fun and, and maybe we'll get to this soon. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think there's going to be a point uh, that that our paths will cross again, and, and maybe we can do another another show. I, I would I would enjoy that for sure. If you ever get to Anaheim or California, I guess it is the big podcasting event. Someday I'll I'll get my gold coins together and save up a trip. But you never know where we'll meet up. That's for sure. I would love that. And you probably only need Bitcoin at that point. Well played. <laughs> You've been paying attention. I appreciate that. Thank you. Good, Elijah. Um, I, I wish you and Nerdy by Nature the best. I will continue to um, you know, wait anxiously for all of your future episodes and appreciate your time today. Likewise, David. Thank you. I appreciate doing this and having some fun and be able to get together and realize that we're not that different after all. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>